Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. And I want to just read the passage that we're looking at here before we get into it. Just follow along as I read Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray here. Lord, I thank you and we get to study this passage together. God, may it just do the work that you intended it to do. And uh, thank you, Lord, that, that we get to gather together and sing and hear about your work around the world and, and just be engaged with truth, Lord. Help us to set aside our egos and, 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 and to be able to just focus and learn with humility. And may we be conformed to your image. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this passage that we're looking at today, it's an interesting section, and I want to kind of explain it to you so that you can understand what Luke is doing as he's writing this wonderful account of the church. It's a pretty powerful section. But there's something that Luke does in the book of Acts that will help you understand these few verses here. What Luke does is that he cycles through a big event and then looks at the church. And then he goes through a big event and then he looks at the church. And then another big event and he looks at the church. He goes back and forth like this. And what he's always doing is he's trying to say, here is the big thing that the Spirit of God did. And then that's how, and then, and then he takes that big thing and he says, now let me show you how that defined the church. Because there's something that Luke does in the first nine chapters of this letter. He focuses on describing the church not as an institution, but as a people who have gathered for a reason. And that's one of the unique things that he does. The way he defines the church is he doesn't say the church was this kind of a church or the church was that kind of a church. What he says is the church is made up of a bunch of people who live and act and are devoted to a certain thing. They have a common bond. And he goes through and he explains this over and over and over again. So let me show you. Let me explain it to you. First thing he does, the first big event is, of course, Peter preaching at Pentecost, right? And he preaches this gospel. Thousands of people get saved. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, he defines the church. He defines it. And he says, now listen, I want to tell you about this church. It's a, devo a devoted church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to breaking. They were devoted. When they received this message and were baptized, they came out of that saying, we are all in. We are a devoted group of people. That's the first description he gives. And then he goes through and he explains the next big event. Peter and John are preaching in the temple. They get arrested. 
They're thrown in jail. They get threatened. The church is praying for boldness. They're praying that God would allow them to keep them, give them the energy to, to, to keep faithful to proclaiming Jesus, even though people are threatening them. And then in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, we get the next description of the church. It says, okay, you know what they were? They were a loving church. They loved each other. They cared about each other. They had this deep love and affection to such a degree that people were willing to sell their homes to give it to somebody in need. That's how loving they were. Now we have the next big event. The next big event. We studied it a couple weeks ago, Ananias and Sapphira. Here's a couple trying to pretend like they're more spiritual than they really are. They're trying to act like these people who are loving. They're trying to act like they're all in, but in reality they're not. They're faking it. And so what happens? God kills them. It's an incredibly powerful moment. God, in essence, is saying, no fakers in the church. You have to be all in or not. And then what happens? Verses 12 through 16, we get this description of the church. We get our next one, and that's what we're going to see today. This church is a distinct church. There's something unique about this group of people. They're devoted, they're loving, and they're distinct. And that's what we're going to see today. Your outline's pretty simple. We're going to look at that distinction, but then we're going to look at another element of it that not only it was a distinct church, and it was also a supernatural church, and that supernatural element of it helps feed the distinction. It all works together, and I want to show you this today. And what I want to really show you is that the church itself is intended to be set apart. And this set-apartness is intended to do two things. It's intended to keep the fakers away, but those whom God is really drawing, it is intended to draw them in. So it's intended to be distinct. It's not intended to look like the world. It's not intended to just look like another religion. It's intended to look a very specific way that will keep some people going, no, I don't want that. But other people will say, I need that. And they'll flow in. That's what I want you to see today. Let's look here at the distinction of the church. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Okay, now I'm going to skip over that first line there about the signs and wonders. We'll deal with that on the supernatural side. What I want to show you right now is that second part of verse 12, that they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now here's what he's saying. This group, this church of probably close to 20,000 people, if you were to add up, you know, they added up just, if you added up just the men, it might be somewhere around 10,000, but if you add the women and children, you're probably close to 20,000 people. And this group of 20,000 met daily. They met daily. And they continued to meet every day for prayer. In the temple, there was a time of prayer every day in the afternoon. And this group of 20,000 people gathered, and they gathered in this place called Solomon's Portico. Now let me show it to you. we got a picture of it up here. Now, if you notice down at the bottom right... I left my, I forgot my little pointer thing. But if you see down at the bottom right, if your eyes can see it, there's a little uh, entryway with some steps going up. That's called Solomon's Portico. It's outside of the temple. And there was that step there, 
And the 20,000 would gather outside on that region, and, they would, and the apostles would stand up on that step, and they would preach. And they would declare Jesus. And when it says in Acts 2.42 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, this is where the apostles' teaching would happen. The apostles would stand up on that step, 20,000 people would be out there, and these guys would be shouting the truth of Christ to the 20,000 people. So this is what Luke is saying. This is what is happening here. They were completely devoted to this. I can't imagine what that would be like. Could you imagine standing out there in a, in a crowd of 20,000 people with an apostle standing up on a step just shouting Jesus and how he fulfilled the law and how he's the, the, the whole point of everything. They're proclaiming the Old Testament, showing how it points to Christ and his cross and his death and his resurrection. And they're standing out there as families just listening to this. In fact, I'd like you to stand for the rest of the service just so... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay? It's an incredible picture of what happens. Now, I want you to catch the little description because look at what happens in verse 13. None of the rest dared to join them. First part of 13. What does that mean? Well, the reason why... What he's talking about none of the rest is this, that people are going to the temple... They're walking, I mean, they have to walk past this crowd of 20,000 people. And this crowd is there, the apostles are up on the steps, and the rest of the Jews that are going in for their daily prayer are saying, you don't really want to be part of this group. You see, here's the reality. If you're really not all in, you could die. Like, you could die. There was this couple that were faking it. And they died. Not only that, the religious leaders are saying that if you preach Jesus, you could get arrested. You could lose your life. There's a cost. And in many ways, that cost was put up right up front in the early days of the church, if you think about it. The cost of following Jesus are the first, after the first moment of the proclamation of the gospel, and the, the first group comes in to the church. The very next lesson that God has for him is, you know what? You could get arrested and executed. Make sure you're willing, you understand there's a cost here. Then the next great experience is what? Hey, God knows your heart. Don't fake it with him. You're either all in or you're not. Right away, God's putting the cost up front and it's causing people to stop and say, I'm not certain we should mess around with those people. By saying they didn't dare to join them, it actually meant that they were scared to join them. They were afraid of these people. They want to go near them. Right? God's laying it out there right up front. But then notice the rest of verse 13, though. But the people held them in high esteem. I, I don't want to join your group, but I cannot but respect your group. Why? Well, what do we know about the church already? They were fully devoted to the truth and fully devoted to loving one another. They had the two marks, truth and love. They were all in on the truth. They were willing to give up their life for it. They were willing to, to risk everything. They were willing to stand in the presence of the temple leaders who could arrest them at any moment. And they were willing to stand there and say, man, I'm all in for Jesus. I, I, I don't care if you arrest me. And 
They were fully devoted to each other to such a degree that if someone had a need, they'd sell their house to give it to them. So even though the outsiders might be scared to join them, they don't look at them and go, those guys are weird. They didn't bring reproach upon the gospel by the way they live their life. Because you see, the two pursuits of life and, and for the Christian is that we need to be vigorously after truth and at the same time equally vigorously after love. And if truth and love aren't growing together, then you've missed it. Because all truth should lead to love. And that's what they had as a church. It was a very powerful moment. So notice what God did. On the one hand, you got people not wanting to be part of this thing, but then notice verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. And more than ever. Now that's a powerful statement, right? The first time the, the gospel is proclaimed, what happens? You know, a few thousand get saved. Then it proclaimed again, a few thousand more get saved, right? I mean, I would consider that pretty fruitful. As I said before, you know, Peter preaches his first sermon and, you know, 5,000 get saved. I mean, that's only happened to me twice. And that's a power. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> to me, that's like a more than ever moment, right? But yet what he's saying is what happened in Peter's first two sermons is nothing compared to what happened after they were threatened with death and Ananias and Sapphira were killed. He said, you think those were more than ever people, multitudes are poiling in. These are very powerful statements. So when you see it this way, he's saying multitudes of both men and women. This is Luke's kind of dramatic way of saying the floodgates of believers are pouring into the church by the thousands. Their vigorous devotion to truth, the apostles' teaching, their vigorous devotion to loving the brethren, the fact that God made it clear you're either all in or you're all out, kept the fakers away and brought in by the thousands of people. The church was distinct. That's the uniqueness of the distinction that, that I think Luke wants us to see about this church. He wants us to understand how distinct the church is designed to be. Now, Something else with this church. It's distinct, but it's also supernatural. And what I want to do is I want to point out to you, kind of our second point here, the idea of the supernatural work of the church and to understand this supernatural work because you've got to see this supernatural work to understand. So let's go back to verse 12 again, and I want to kind of explain this to you, what's happening. In verse 12 it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Okay, so that's a, a, a very powerful statement. He's saying these things called signs and wonders were going on by the apostles. You've got to notice, first of all, who's doing the signs and wonders. It doesn't say it's happening among the people. It says it's happening among the apostles. It's important to note that. That will help you understand why this is happening. So the apostles are the delivery. They're the ones that God is using to carry out these incredible miracles. Now, what are these signs and wonders? Just look at verses 15 and 16. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
So what's happening? These thousands of people that are pouring in, they're bringing their sick. And they're bringing the sick in by the, by the thousands. They're laying them on mats. And, and, and it's so incredible that, that some are just saying, hey, all you got to do is get in the presence of Peter. And if he walks by and his shadow touches you, you'll be healed. That's a powerful moment, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, that is just like, literally, that would just be like Peter walking up and down the rows of a hospital and people just getting out of the beds. Right? No big moments, no big incantations, nothing happening. They're just laying them out there. They're in the presence of the apostles and they're getting healed. Now, why is that happening? What is going on at this moment? How are we to understand this? Well, let me kind of explain this to you. And in fact, what I'd like to do is just give you a kind of a biblical understanding of signs and wonders. So that you can get an understanding of it in the whole Bible. You can see how God uses it, how it was used in, here in the apostles, because signs and wonders are terms that are used throughout the Bible. And they mean something specifically. Let me kind of explain to you what they mean. The word sign itself is pretty simple. It just means something that points to something. Right? That's pretty clear. Right? We have signs all around us. It's nothing different than right here next to us, right underneath that thing, visitor. So if you come to the school for a game and you're a visitor, you know where to sit. There's a sign telling you that's where you sit. Okay, it's pretty clear. Exit signs. Right? That's, what, that's all a sign means. Something that points to something. A wonder means something that's supernatural. What do we mean by that? Well, law of gravity says that I should be standing here and not floating. Okay? If I were to suddenly float, we would call that supernatural, right? It's above the natural order. So something that's outside the normal natural order is going on. Now, signs and wonders are found all over the Bible. There's 52 references of signs in the Bible, 55 references of wonders. 29 times they're found together, signs and wonders. Okay, those numbers will not save you, so you don't really need to worry about that. Just point behind those numbers just to let you know that it's all over the place. So if you were to look at it, you'd have to say, okay, what do they mean? Okay, if something is pointing to something, and there's a supernatural element behind it, then you have to understand what is it intended to point to, and why is it supernatural? Especially when signs and wonders are together. So let me give you a little theology of signs and wonders. Let's go in the Old Testament just so you can get an understanding of this. In the Old Testament, signs and wonders were used to do three things in the Old Testament. Three things. The first thing that they were to do was to point you to God's nature. Just give you an example of it in Exodus 10. right? Because they point you to God's nature. Exodus 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son of your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Okay, so all the plagues are coming through, the ten plagues, you know, you got the whole tension between Moses and Pharaoh, all this stuff going on, frogs and gnats and water turning to blood and the angel of death killing the firstborn. And he's saying, now, I did all of this so that you would know that I rule the world. So these signs and wonders are meant to point to, because remember, a sign has to point to something. It's pointing to, he's saying, the fact that I am the Lord. 
Now, this is just one example, but there are many times, if you look up signs and wonders in the Old Testament, where you would see, I did this sign to show you that I am God. To show you that I am Redeemer. It's that idea. He's pointing to his nature. Second time, second use of signs and wonders in the Old Testament. Sometimes signs and wonders are actually used to actually deliver people. To physically deliver people. Deuteronomy 26, 7 and 8. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, saw our afflictions, our toil, our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with mighty hand, with outstretched arms, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. So the idea is, that, of course, all those things happened in Israel, and it was that thing that was freaking the people out, saying, get rid of these Jews, get them out of here, man. This is not good for us. Take our money. Get out. And basically the idea is, the signs and the wonders was the tool that God used to actually physically deliver Israelites. One more use of it in the Old Testament, to produce worship and service. I'm not going to read you this text, but Jeremiah 32, 17 through 23, he recounts the Exodus. And and as he recounts it, he says, now God did all of this so that you would worship him and be devoted to him. He did all these signs and wonders that you would worship and be devoted to him. Of course, in Jeremiah, they didn't, they weren't devoted to him. He's saying, you didn't follow the sign that was put before you. Now, the point in me sharing you this little journey through the Old Testament is to show you that signs and wonders had a really specific purpose in the Old Testament. God was doing these things not just to do them, not just to improve people's lives, right? Because even if God raises somebody from the dead, they're still going to die, right? Poor Lazarus. You think about it, man. Dying is really painful. He had to do it twice. Right? I mean, but there was a reason why he had to be raised from the dead. It was a sign and a wonder to point to something. They always have to point something. So, the Old Testament, point to God's nature. It's the tool that God is using, pointing to his power to deliver, and pointing people to worship him. Okay? It's Old Testament. Now you say, what about in the New Testament? Why do we have it in the book of Acts... It's only the apostles that are doing the signs and the wonders. Most of the time, it's just the apostles doing it. Why just them? Why isn't it flooding out to everybody? Why is it just reserved for these leaders? Well, there's a passage that tells us why the signs occurred in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. And it's found in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And the signs and the wonders are intended to authenticate the man and the message. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, It was attested to by us, by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let me explain to you what he's saying here. It's pretty simple. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, he says, man, Jesus is everything, right? He spoke. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's the revelation of God. He's the truth of God. He's more superior than everybody in the world. Then he gets to chapter 2 and he says, therefore... You should really listen to what Jesus said. 
And then basically what he's saying in this chapter, he's saying, think about it. The Old Testament, when God gave the law, these angels were giving it to Moses, and, and people who didn't follow the law suffered greatly. How much more intense is it going to be when God's own son is speaking to you? That's his point here. You better listen to it. You better listen to it. And he said, not only, though, he says, not only was it declared by the Lord, but then there was a group of people who heard it. And they came and they started speaking what Jesus said. And when they were speaking, God affirmed that they were speaking the word of God by giving them the ability to do these signs and wonders. Because you have to think about it. They're standing up on Solomon's portico and they're saying, the Old Testament points to Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you're not following God at all. Someone in the crowd's going to say, prove that to me. Prove it to me. And Peter's going to say, okay, bring a sick person by. Put them in my shadow. And they'll raise, they'll get healthy. Boom. You want to know that God's with me? It's, you know, not that Peter's actually saying this, right? This is more like a movie character in America, right? You want to know God's with me? You know, bring me your sick, right? But that's not what he's really saying. But that's the essence, really, of how I feel, it says, right? <laughs> he's proving it. He's proving this is the truth. He's authenticating, which means this, and the author of Hebrews is, is giving us the point. What they say, you better listen to. So that supernatural element of the church here in Acts is very important. It's not important because you just go, wow, wouldn't it be cool to not have to go to a doctor? Right? Wouldn't it be cool to have Peter as your friend? Right? Well, I'm not feeling good. Hey, Peter, come on over for dinner. Oh, hey, I feel great. You know, <laughs> That's not the point of it. The point of it is to say, you better listen to what they're saying about Jesus. These miracles are a warning to us. How they define God, how they define truth, how they define the way to heaven, how they define how to live your life, what they tell you is serious business. The author of Hebrews says, take heed to what they say. Those signs and wonders are authenticating the message, and the message is the point. Jesus Christ is everything. Living for Him is worth giving up everything for. Living for Him is worth putting up with everything for. And the moment that the the gospel pushes you to have to die to yourself, and you say, is it worth it? The answer is yes, it is. How do I know? Because God spoke to us through His Son. And there were men who heard it. And these men were authenticated by what they did. So listen to what they say. Listen to what they say. So here's the point. The supernatural nature of the church is to drive us back. It's to drive us back to the distinction of the church. And the distinction of the church is that we are all about being all in for Jesus. And sometimes being all in causes you to face moments where you lose a lot. You do. You lose a lot. 
And sometimes we want to say, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And the answer is, yes, it is. Because there's no other way to life. There's no other way to hope. There's no other way to fulfillment than to be all in for Jesus. What we're going to do here this morning in response to this message is we're going to take the Lord's table together. And what we're going to do when we take the Lord's table is we're going to declare this message. Right? We're saying we're all in for Jesus. But what does that mean? What that means is that we do really believe that He came from heaven. God Himself took on a human body so that He could live in obedience where we couldn't. He could take the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. He not only could take that wrath, He could bear it, He could pay the full punishment for it. God would accept that in our place and raise Him from the dead so that we then could have life. But not only life, but we could suddenly be connected back to our Creator and suddenly connected back to the One who made us. And we can begin to live and walk for the purposes with which He created us. Which means that we can surrender our agenda for the world, our agenda for our lives, our agenda for everybody else, our agenda for all the people we want to control, all that. We can just surrender all that and say, Jesus, man, I just want to be all in for you. Because you see, you restored me back to God. You restored me back to my reason for being here. You've restored me back to everything. So when we partake of this table here this morning, this is a moment of declaration for you. Paul said that every time you take this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And today I want us to focus on that. What I would like for this moment to be for you is a moment of declaration. A moment where, where when you get that bread and you get that cup and you're holding it in your hands, that you'd be thinking about a couple of things. First, you'd be thinking about all the ways that you're not all in for Jesus. All the areas of your life that you're trying to control and hold on to and grab hold of. All the areas of life that you're just frustrated by. And you'd say, okay, I'm surrendering this to you, Jesus. I'm surrendering it to you. You would, you would let that go. And then also, as you're holding that cup and the bread, and to say, you know what? Not only that, not only do I want to let this go, but I absolutely want to be all in. I just want to live for you. I want to believe this message be there for you. And so I hope that this time together is a time where you can do that. And you can have some, some communion with the Lord in terms of your heart. We open the Lord's table up to anybody who comes here in the sense that you don't have to be a member of this church. But what I would say is that if you've never really trusted Christ before, if you've never really said, hey, I'm all, you know, if you're just here checking things out, this thing won't save you. A little piece of bread and a little cup can't save you. And so you don't really need to partake of this. You don't. You don't need to. Just set it by because you've got something more important to do. You should be thinking about what I said. You should be thinking about what the text says and, and saying, okay, Jesus, I want to be all in. Help me. But if you have trusted Christ, and maybe things are a little out of whack here today in your life, maybe things are a little out of whack for the past few months or years, this is a good moment to come before the table and to come before the cross and, and to say, okay, I want to hear this. I, I want to be a, a distinct person. 
I want to be known as a Christian. I want to be known as a Christian. So what we're going to do is we're going to pass out the elements. We pass, here's how we do it here. Pass the bread out. We pass the cup out. We don't lead you through taking it. We just want you to take it over the course of a couple of songs. Just take it on your own. And, uh, and after those two songs, somebody else is going to come up here and close in prayer. And, uh, and, that's, and that's how that process goes. Because we don't want to interrupt your communion with the Lord. And so you can sing, you can pray, you can read Scripture, whatever it is, but just take some time and think through the reality of the cross. So I'm going to call the, mus- uh, the musicians and also the, the men distributing the elements forward. And would you just bow your, your head with me? I'm going to pray here. Lord, I thank you for just this short description of the church. They were distinct. They just really lived for you. So much so that the fakers wouldn't be a part of it. But those that you were drawing ran to it by the thousands. Lord, may we be that distinct. May we believe this message. You affirmed it by these apostles. You verified that what they said about Jesus is true. So, Lord, may it be true in our hearts. And as we come to the table here this morning, Lord, I pray, God, that that our time here would cause us to reflect on our devotion and commitment to You. Help us do business with You, God, and to think through our life and to be challenged to think about whether or not we live that distinct life that You've empowered us to live. Help us just to clear the stuff from our lives and the sin that so easily weighs us down. And to proclaim Jesus today. And may we boldly stand with the cross and be worshipers of you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.